If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Although medieval Europe was staunchly Christian, Pagan goddesses still loomed large in the popular imagination. From the reams of poetry devoted to Mother Earth, to the common folk magicians who swore that the Fairy Queen had taught them how to heal people. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Professor Ronald Hutton, who's the author of a new book, Queens of the Wild. They spoke about four of these deities and their complex place in a Christian world. So, Ronald, why did you decide to write this book? I decided to write this book because I spotted a problem with our attitude to the question of pagan survival in the Middle Ages. And that was that there were a number of figures, rather goddess-like figures, around in medieval culture who didn't seem to me to be surviving from the pagan ancient world, but there was absolutely nothing Christian about them. And so they didn't fit into the idea that either something had to be Christian or it had to be a survival from ancient paganism. It raised the possibility that medieval Christian Europeans were capable of encountering or imagining entities, beings, that were utterly unchristian, that looked thoroughly pagan, but were actually encountered or imagined by them. Uh, And that really didn't fit any kind of language we had to discuss the period. And who are these four deities? There's uh, the figure of Mother Nature or Mother Earth, who's really a figure discussed by intellectuals, by elite writers. There's the exact opposite, a charismatic female figure who goes around at night and is very much part of the popular imagination or experience. And she's got names like Diana or Herodias or Holler or Percht, 
and many other local names. And what she does basically is scoot around with a retinue of fellow spirits and favoured human beings. Sometimes she and her friends just party. Sometimes they visit the houses of particular worthy people and bless them and have a feast there. But they restore all the food and drink that they take. The third is the Fairy Queen, who is the female monarch of a fairy kingdom. And the final one is uh, the Kalech or Koilech or Kaliach, who's a uh, specifically a Gaelic personality. She's Irish and from the Scottish Highlands and Islands and is a tremendous spirit of the land and in Scotland of winter. So let's drill down first then into Mother Earth. And you mentioned mm. that these these goddesses are unique because they aren't pagan survivals per se. But are there any ancient pagan deities who Mother Earth is similar to? Does she share any attributes with any of them? She very much does. And she's inspired originally by figures like the Greek Gaia and the Roman Natura. But what's really interesting about these is they're not great goddesses in the ancient world. There are no temples to Gaia, for example, or to Natura. They're really literary figures spoken about by philosophers or poets. And that's kind of why Christians felt able to take them on and develop them massively into very important figures of uh, the poetic and the theological imagination. Because there weren't any temples or shrines, they hadn't been worshipped, they couldn't really be demons. So they were very, very good to think with. And they had an enormous life going right down to the great goddess of modern feminist spirituality. Let's focus then on that medieval period. How does Mother Earth come to fill a gap in the Christian concept of the cosmos? There were two gaps that Mother Earth filled rather nicely, uh, and they're reflected by the two parts of her name. The first is that of a female divinity, who in the medieval Christian cosmos is subordinate to God, but is really important. She looks after the natural world, the whole material world, on behalf of the guy who created it. And so she erects a tremendous big, thick green screen between uh, human beings and uh, an all-male, all-powerful God. And the other part of it is, is nature, that... Uh, the medieval church had an enormous number of saints that in many ways fulfilled the functions of the goddesses and gods of the ancient world. But they, a lot of them, although they liked animals quite often, didn't really connect with nature and weren't concerned with the natural world. So to have somebody who's more or less exclusively concerned with that filled a real gap. Fantastic. And something that really struck me is this transgressive nature of the goddesses. But it's so unique in the case of Mother Earth because she has traditionally feminine values. She's a mother. She protects. How does she fit into this idea of the transgressive? She's less transgressive than the others. The, the others are seriously transgressive. Uh, she is much more respectable, but she's still very much a subculture, a counterculture goddess. In other words, she's not mainstream. 
And she's particularly beloved of people who span that boundary between philosophy and poetry. But they really go to town on her in imagining her beauty, uh, populating her world with palaces and uh, chariots and associations. And she really comes alive in their imagination. Uh, And she trucks on right on from the Middle Ages through the kind of Renaissance Reformation period down through to the 19th century where she's reborn an even greater might in the minds of romantic poets. And you know, she goes on through Robert Graves and uh, winds up as the great goddess of modern spiritual feminism. And in her modern iteration, in an increasingly secular world, what parts of her are discarded? I don't think very much has been discarded from the Middle Ages. I think uh, something else gets discarded in the modern imagining, and that's God. Because right up until the end of the 19th century, more mainstream writers, including poets, would keep her in a position of being given the world by God. They'd accept the whole Genesis story, but then bring in this figure of Mother Earth to care for it. And in the writings of some poets, like George Meredith, for example, she not only looked after the earth, but actually did so through the agency of pagan gods and goddesses from Greek and Roman mythology. But come the 20th century, uh, Jehovah just fades out of the picture, and the goddess is left in charge of the lot, and that's a really big development. And why do you think that she's unique in being widely a literary phenomenon in the medieval period, whereas the other three goddesses you talk about are believed in by the common people? I think that in each case, they fill a space. They do stuff that nobody else is doing. And what Mother Earth or Mother Nature was doing was providing for those two aspects I discussed at the beginning of a really powerful divine feminine figure who also cares about nature. And let's move on now to the Fairy Queen. So to set the scene, in medieval Britain, how were fairies and elves thought of? Okay, they were thought of originally, as far as we can tell, as being nuisances. The Anglo-Saxons believed in beings called elves, who are mostly recorded as giving people illnesses, uh, especially sudden pains and afflictions. There's hints in the Anglo-Saxon literature that they were more glamorous at times, but they're only hints. And when you look at the records of fairy-like beings recorded by scholars and chroniclers in the 12th, 13th century, the High Middle Ages, there are lots of unrelated stories of non-human beings who give help to humans, have sex with humans, just impinge on the human world, occasionally take them into their world. But there's no framework around them. They have nothing much in common, apart from the fact they're weird and they're not human and they interfere with humans. But then comes in this big literary theme of the phase. And these are beings which are superhuman or enhanced human equivalents to medieval ladies and gentlemen. In other words, they're exactly like fair ladies and dashing knights, but they have magical powers. And their status is very ambiguous. Are they human? Are they not? It's never made clear. But they sweep the European imagination, especially in romantic literature, all the way from Germany to Ireland by around 1200. And out of these is born the idea of a fairy kingdom, 
an organized bunch of fays with a queen and very often a king as well. And what would this fairy queen be like? Well, she's very glamorous and she often really likes humans. And the interesting thing is that having wandered around literature for about a hundred years, helping out elite human beings, she gets into the popular imagination, or as some at the time would say, experience. And so by 1500, after about 100 years, very, very ordinary people, illiterate or semi-literate people, are claiming to have met her and been looked after by her, and especially taught magic by her, which enables them to set up as healers and finders of lost property and removers of curses, the, the kind of people we'd call folk magicians or service magicians. Delving into the healing aspect of that, how is that connected to fears about witches? It gets connected to fears about witches when the people in charge of society and in charge of the legal system begin fearing witches properly, which is from the mid-16th century onwards, from the, really from the 1560s in England and Scotland, when there's a panic sweeping Europe about a completely new religion of demonic witchcraft, of groups of human beings empowered to work destructively terrible magic by Satan, using demons to do it, as long as they worship him. And this is intended to wreck human society and Christianity. This is a new idea. It only appears in the 1420s. And it really spreads across Europe from the 1560s when the wars of religion break out. And the Reformation has really heated up into an all-out war between Protestants and Catholic. And at that point, people who claim that they have met the Queen of the Fairies and or her husband, the king, and have got magical powers from them can be banged up very easily as having met the devil in female or male form and been seduced by him. And what happens to these people? It depends how unlucky they are. The worst case scenario, which is, of course, the cases for which we have most records, is that they are denounced by people basically for doing the wrong kind of magic, for not doing what they're paid to do or failing in it, uh, or making enemies. And then they are put on trial. And especially in Scotland, where the, the law is much harder on people who talk to spirits as opposed to do anything else, they're often strangled and burned. A horrible fate. And is yeah. this particularly in the reign of King James I and VI? Yes. Uh, James is, is, in a sense, just in the frame here because it's in his reign that witch hunting heats up all over Europe, including in England. Uh, but also, he's that rarity on an English throne, an intellectual. And he becomes interested in witchcraft because he becomes convinced that witches have tried to kill him personally. And then, of course, being an intellectual, he has to write a book. It's actually by the horrific standards of uh, 16th century demonology quite a good book. It's short. It's to the point. It's extremely readable and it advocates witch hunting. And he is energised by two big waves of witch hunting in the Scotland he rules. But finally on James to redeem him. 
When he comes down to England, becomes king here, he actually becomes much more sceptical and damps down witch hunting by examining and discrediting uh, witch hunters and witnesses against witches. Mm. And thinking about these other goddesses, are any of them connected to witchcraft? Certainly, one of our other goddesses is connected to witchcraft big time. And that's the one I call the Lady of the Night, the one who goes around at night with a retinue. In the Alps in particular, and above all in northern Italy, the centuries-old belief in this lady becomes snatched up by the witch panics. And women in particular who claim to have gone in her retinue, because she particularly liked women, fellow women, were thought of as having worshipped Satan in her form and attended witches' sabbaths in the form of the games and uh, the feasts over which this nocturnal roving lady presided. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Belief in hag figures who are figures of the land and often very powerful, scary, non human beings who tangle with warrior heroes in medieval tradition and eat them and beat them or, or else are slain by them. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And why is it particularly poor women who are drawn to the Lady of the Night? It's particularly poor women who are drawn to the Lady of the Night because it's particularly poor women who become folk magicians. It is a, a real career opening for them. It's something they can do. It's a niche they can fill. And in areas where there's a popular belief in this lady, the claim that you've been out with her and she's trained you is uh, like a university degree. It qualifies you to be a magician and people will take you more seriously. And just how far does belief in her spread throughout Europe? It first appears in the Rhineland. That's now... West Germany running into eastern France and the Netherlands. 
in the ninth century. That's just before 900. And it then spreads outwards right across Germany to Austria, right across France to northern Spain, and right across Italy as far as Sicily. So it's a kind of quite vast empire of of hers, of belief, which then at the end of the Middle Ages breaks into some quite firmly marked zones in which elements of the original idea of a night roving superhuman female with human and spirit followers breaks into different specific regional variations, and she has different names in those areas. And which ancient pagan deities can we connect her to? We can't actually connect her really to any ancient pagan deities. The medieval churchmen connected her to Diana, which is for two good reasons, I think. The first is that Diana was the ancient Roman goddess they'd all heard of, and the one most connected with the night and with witchcraft. But also, she's the only pagan deity to feature in the New Testament. It is, after all, Diana's temple at Ephesus, that creates a focal point for resistance to St. Paul and his companion. So she's simply one of the best-known pagan goddesses to Christian medieval churchmen, and the best one known connected to the night. Mm. And so far, when we've talked about the ancient goddesses, we focused on Roman and Greek deities. But what about in the Icelandic sagas? In the Icelandic sagas, there's a tradition of non-human beings, uh, often called trolls or trolls, who revel at night. But they don't have a female leader. In later Norwegian folklore, Odin, the former pagan god, is the leader of nocturnal revels, but not in the Middle Ages. In fact, Odin's only connection with them is he boasts of having broken them up. He's a party pooper. Uh, he disrupts the, the revels of other spirits. So there are similar traditions, but they're not quite in the same form. There's also, of course, the famous belief in Valkyries, who are female spirits who ride through the sky. But they're not particularly connected with the night. They don't have an agreed leader, and they don't sweep up live human beings. They pick up the corpses of dead warriors and take them away to be revivified, to fight for Odin and the Apocalypse, the Ragnarok, which ends the reign of the gods. So how does the Lady of the Night fit into the Christian worldview? She doesn't. And Christians try and cope with her in different ways over about 500 years. At the beginning, when she first appears in popular tradition, churchmen say that believing in her is wrong. It's a demonic illusion, but that's because she doesn't exist. It's uh, a silly superstition conducted among ignorant people who are deceived by the devil. And so what they need to do is stop believing in it and uh, do some penance, you know, have bread and water for a certain number of weeks or months, and that's it. And that's the tradition for most of the Middle Ages. But when the belief in her gets mixed up in the idea of a demonic conspiracy of devil-worshipping witches then it's a whole different magnitude of problem and the people convicted and tried for going with her can be put to death and scores of them are. 
And when does belief in her die out? Does it die out? It doesn't really die out. What it does is break into these different regional traditions. It dies out pretty well completely in France and Spain. And it hangs on in parts of Italy and Sicily and Germany. She's a popular figure in Germany and Austria to this day under her late medieval names of Holder or Holler, who's often seen as a snow spirit and a, uh, a benevolent visiting spirit, and Frau Percht, who's often seen as a scarier kind of female spirit who goes around punishing or frightening naughty children in midwinter. And both of them get become much more closely associated with the Christmas season from the late Middle Ages. So the last feminine figure you focus on is the Kaliach. How far back can we trace her in sources? Really, in the modern version, we can trace her back to the early 20th century, but her component parts go way back further. The modern idea of the Kaliach is that of an immense spirit of the land, uh, a giantess who creates lakes and mountains and prehistoric monuments, and in Scotland brings in the winter season and she loses her power when winter ebbs. But the component parts of her, I think the most ancient, are a belief in hag figures who are figures of the land and often very powerful, scary, non-human beings who tangle with warrior heroes in medieval tradition and eat them and beat them or or else are slain by them. Uh, And this idea is found through the Celtic lands. It's Wales as well as Ireland and Scotland. And there's also a particular literary figure who gets mixed up with them, and that's the Kaliach Var. And she is a a figure from probably a 9th, 10th century Irish poem, a tearjerker, spoken by a woman who was once royal, powerful and beautiful, but is now very old and forsaken. And it's basically a Christian meditation on the follies of material joy. In other words, the uselessness of life, the only real wisdom being in preparing for heaven and paradise. So a classic Christian life-rejecting attitude. And she becomes quite a popular literary character in medieval Ireland. And she gets into folklore and she gets mixed up with this older idea of uh, mountain building, lake creating, giant hags, non-human, superhuman beings. And uh, the result is this composite figure who's found in a lot of different forms in Gaelic folklore by the 19th century. And in the early 20th century, Scottish folklorists create out of this a composite ancient goddess spanning the whole Gaelic world, uh, which I think is a creation of the folklorists. It's putting together different local versions of the hag tradition to create a single entity Uh, who's now a very powerful folkloric figure. Uh, I think that modern entities have a life of their own, just like medieval entities. And before we come on to the folklorists, it really struck me that she's the only figure who is consistently not benevolent, whereas the other three goddesses have much more positive attributes and help humans. Why is it that she is so unhelpful, so dangerous? 
The other female figures have particular functions, and so has she, whereas the other female figures are there basically to queen us over the cosmos, as in the case of Mother Earth, uh, or to help uh, marginalised, friendless, down-and-out human beings, like the Lady of the Night or the Fairy Queen. The Kaliach is basically there to be a mighty female figure presiding over quite a harsh nature. Because the mother nature of rural Ireland and the Scottish Highlands is a mother nature of people often with subsistence agriculture in a landscape of extreme climate and poor soils. And so na nature in large parts of West Ireland and the Highlands and Islands of Scotland is magnificent looking but often rather unkind. And the Carliach personifies that. So something that struck me reading this book is it's as much about the historiography as it is about the goddesses themselves. In the 19th and 20th centuries, how do folklorists and historians view these pagan deities? During the late 19th, early 20th century, there's a great willingness to believe, even a a momentum to believe among folklorists and, in fact, most other kinds of scholar, that first, a lot of the folk customs and traditions recorded in the 19th century were survivals of very ancient pagan religious beliefs and rituals. And second, that paganism persisted in most of Europe, including Britain, far into the Christian Middle Ages and maybe the early modern period. Some saw it in the form of paganism being the religion of the common people, Christianity a kind of veneer held by the elite. Others saw it as a dual faith that permeated society from top to bottom. There isn't agreement among them as to how paganism actually ended. Some think it just faded away painlessly. Others thought it was wiped out under the name of witchcraft and that the notorious early modern witch trials were of people who are practitioners of a surviving pagan religion or the surviving pagan religion. And how did the circumstances of this period lead to this view? There are a number of reasons why intellectuals should be seeking uh, for a strong and persistent paganism in the medieval period, uh, and they come from very different roots. One is simply a desire to disestablish Christianity as a dominant hegemonic religious faith, uh, a kind of anti-Christian, free-thinking, rationalist view, which clearly could undermine the claims of Christianity to be the natural religion of Europeans if it could be shown that actually a lot of Europeans hadn't embraced it throughout what was supposed to be the most Christian period of history, which is the Middle Ages and the early modern period. But the other impetus is to look for a kind of organic, soothing continuity in culture, especially in the countryside, in industrialising and urbanising countries, particularly England, which was industrialising and urbanising faster than anywhere else. And so the idea that paganism continued for a long time rather painlessly alongside Christianity smooths out the big religious ruptures of the past and gives this idea of an abiding continuity, especially in the countryside, which is very comforting. And why does the school of thought fade so quickly in the late 20th century? 
It fades very quickly in the late 20th century because of an enormous cultural revolution in the late 20th century. Basically, the idea of persisting paganism is a Victorian Ned Wardian idea in British terms, an equivalent in European terms. And uh, pretty well the whole of Victorian and Edwardian thought got reviewed in the 70s and 80s, largely because the whole Victorian construct, especially in Britain, came apart in the 1960s. It was based on an enormous colonial empire, heavy industry, world power status, and a socially bonding moral code which disadvantaged women, people of non-normative sexualities, and indeed non-normative groups of practically every kind. And in the 1960s, the empire finally vanished. Heavy industry began to be displaced as the basis of the economy. Our world power status was very much in question, and we were seeking a new role. And morality got thoroughly reviewed and indeed deconstructed legally. And the 1970s and 80s, that kind of revolution played itself out. And so in the 1970s, young historians and other kinds of intellectuals interested in the past, began reviewing the foundations of our belief, looking at the evidence again, and questioning everything that we had been told about the past. The whole Victorian product really carried on uh, being augmented through most of the 20th century. It was simply augmented, it was added to, uh, it wasn't questioned. But it, it's the old hippie thing, you know, trust nobody over 30. Uh, we weren't going to trust any historical idea over the age of 30. In the 1970s, Conrad Russell, the son of Bertrand Russell, the great radical philosopher, who was an expert on the early 17th century in Britain, said to me that around 1972, he'd suddenly realised that he could believe that Charles I and James I existed and a cast of associated characters, but nothing else about early 17th century British history. Everything else had to be checked all over again. And that was the spirit of the age. And an awful lot got deconstructed as a result of that exercise. And what was it like for you as a historian working in that period? It was immensely exciting. I'm not a revolutionary by instinct. I don't like destroying things, but it swept me up. And I had my own apotheosis in this epiphany combined uh, in that uh, one winter evening in early 1977, I was in the Bodleian Library at Oxford and realised that two of uh, the, the larger battles of the English Civil War had never happened. They'd been invented by the propagandists of one of the contending parties in London at a time when their side was losing rather heavily in order to keep up morale. Uh, and I could prove that the general who was supposed to have won these battles was never in the vicinity. And I had his letters showing him bogged down, doing a bit of skirmishing somewhere else before retreating. But he was made into a hero and a victor by propagandists in London. And this had been swallowed whole. It appeared in one history after another. And I was appalled that nobody had checked. 
So at that moment, I felt that divine anger that so many young people sensed, that you couldn't believe anything you'd have been told by older generations without checking it. Of course. And how did that apply to this study then? One of the odd things about this particular study, the book, is that I I didn't carry out any of the demolition that's involved in checking the Victorian Edwardian ideas that feature in the book. Uh, They were all the work of other scholars in the 70s and 80s when I was doing other things. And so really my role here is twofold. One is to point out the extent of the demolition by stitching together all the various different bits of it. And the other is to propose where we go forward from here in recasting our view. And part of that problem is the question of whether it's sufficient to use terms like pagan and Christian anymore with this polarity when looking at medieval and early modern European culture. So what would you like to see in the future then? I would like to see a a discussion of how far the terminology still works. And maybe we need to drop these terms altogether when speaking about culture in these periods, unless we're speaking about things that fit into very specific categories. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that figures straight from biblical theology are Christian, uh, as are most Christian saints and all Christian theologians. Uh, And there are customs and ideas that descend from the ancient world. I mean, the whole of classical mythology and arguably a lot of Irish and Norse mythology as well. And huge amounts of art and literature and architecture. But there is also this third category of non-Christian-looking figures and ideas that crop up in Christian society. So I think we have to expand the remit of Christianity beyond the apparently Christian, or else we have to find a way of talking about a form of paganism that isn't opposed to Christianity and yet can be created by Christians as an alternative to it. That was Ronald Hutton. You can read a version of this interview in the June 2022 issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Ronald's book, Queens of the Wild, is published by Yale University Press and is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. (laughs) 